Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can play them on just about any listening device on planet Earth of a digital nature, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you happen to have in your possession. And here is a killer deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Free Will, the new book by Sam Harris, read by Sam Harris, or how about The Stand by Stephen King, or A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the free audiobook, it helps the show. I get a few nickels. It's very pleasant. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is an amazing deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two writers having a conversation that you just had with yourself like five minutes ago. This is your life. My guest today is Leslie Tenorio. He's the author of the new story collection, Monstrous, which is available now from Echo. Uh, his work has won him multiple awards and honors, including the Nelson Algren Award, an NEA Fellowship, a, writing, uh, a Whiting Writers Award, and he was a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. So I'm very pleased to have him on the show. He and I are going to be talking in just a minute. Uh, before we get started, I want to discuss briefly Jonathan Franzen and Rush Limbaugh, two guys who have caused, uh, as far as my computer screen is concerned, an incredible amount of furor over the past week or two. Uh, I've noticed it via social media in particular, uh, the Franzen and Limbaugh effect, how much hatred and backlash uh, that I've seen channeled in their direction. And uh, I feel like I should apologize to Jonathan Franzen for lumping him into the same category as Rush. That's a bit unfair. Uh, I think Rush really is kind of a dark figure uh, in the American public square. Uh, but, you know, just to kind of sum it up, in, in case you're not aware, uh, Jonathan Franzen, author of The Corrections and Freedom, who uh, sinned against Oprah Winfrey so famously years ago, uh, he got in trouble recently for what many people perceive to be the harsh belittling of Edith Wharton in an essay that he wrote for The New Yorker. 
uh, which many people felt was a character assassination that demonstrated gross misogyny. Uh, which I guess does uh, have something in common with Rush Limbaugh's uh, problem. Because Rush, of course, uh, called a Georgetown law student a slut on the air and then suggested that if she wants uh, contraceptives to be covered uh, in her health care policy, she should be required to film herself having sex so that the general public can watch. And I think we all know the story by now, or most of us do, I'm assuming. Uh, and then Jonathan Franzen uh, caused yet another stir when uh, Jamie Attenberg, a writer, went to a reading of his in New Orleans, I believe, and reported that he called Twitter, quote, uh, unspeakably irritating. <laughs> uh, and so, of course, people on Twitter went bananas. Uh, writers on Twitter, in particular, uh, went completely apeshit, saying that this was one more demonstration of Franzen's obnoxious uh, and insufferable self-regard. So, uh, that's the gist. And uh, the real point that I'd like to get at, uh, you know, is that witnessing all of this stuff... Uh, I found myself repeatedly unable to give a shit. And I wonder if that's some kind of problem. Like, uh, you know, do I have a problem if I feel essentially nothing when thinking about this stuff? I'm just not, not able to feel all that emotional about it. And, uh, you know, I did tweet, a, you know, about Limbaugh a little bit. And I did give some thumbs up to certain people who posted some stuff about him. Uh, but that's about it. You know, like like my Limbaugh tweet was this. Rush Limbaugh doing a cannonball into a swimming pool full of mayonnaise. That was all I could muster, you know, it was just that visual. That was how I channeled my, my rage. And, uh, you know, on one level, it kind of freaks me out because I'm looking at my Twitter feed or at my Facebook wall and pretty much everyone is commenting and linking and angry and outraged and signing petitions and ready to march and burn these guys in effigy. And uh, I just I just feel sort of blank and, and kind of lethargic. And uh, it makes me feel sort of alone and possibly dysfunctional. You know, in my head, I'm just like, okay, uh, Rush Limbaugh's crazy. Franzen hates Twitter. Uh, Andy Edith Wharton. Uh, both guys seem to have some issues with women, possibly. Uh, oh, well, I don't fucking know. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that a well-reasoned uh, critique or a rebuttal is totally fine and probably appropriate, uh, almost certainly in Rush Limbaugh's case, that's for sure. But it's always appropriate if you have one to, to offer. Uh, but I also feel like past a certain point, it's kind of like that Ben Kenobi thing, where if you strike somebody down in anger, they just grow more powerful. Right? Uh, or maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe you've got to strike them down. Maybe you've got to hit back hard. And uh, maybe the world is a cold and brutal place, and I'm just <clears throat> too soft and apathetic you know, to properly recognize the stakes. So, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't want uh, destructive energy dominating the American conversation, or any conversation. That's for sure. But, you know, I also believe in the freedom of speech. And, and I think that it has to protect, uh, it especially has to protect people whose opinions and expressions you find uh, vile and reprehensible. Like, isn't that the deal? And uh, the other thing, too, that troubles me about myself is that I tend to agree uh, with Jonathan Franzen when it comes to Twitter. I think it's unspeakably irritating, too. <laughs> but the difference is that uh, I'm on Twitter all the fucking time. I have three different accounts, all of which irritate me unspeakably. And I, I just don't have the strength of character or the personal discipline to get away from it. 
But, you know, then again, I do like Twitter or, or certain aspects of it. You know, I, I find it kind of oddly entertaining and unspeakably irritating. And that's sort of the, you know, that's sort of the, uh, the crux of my problem. I can never decide. I like stuff and I hate it. And uh, often at the same time. Which makes me wonder, you know, if like Rush Limbaugh and I, uh, you know, hypothetically speaking, if the two of us were ever trapped together on an island, or let's say we went fishing together for a long day in a canoe, like would I like the guy one-on-one? Would we enjoy collegial banter? I think it's possible. I think it's possible that I could get along with him uh, for a day. Like I can get along with anyone for a day. I think, maybe. You know, he's, he's probably just like half the dads I knew growing up in the Midwest. That's what I imagine. If you actually knew the guy. Or, or maybe not. You know, maybe he's a total monster. And I would like wind up jumping out of the canoe and swimming for sure. I don't know. So it's a kind of a conundrum. And I'm sure there's an intellectual thread here that I'm failing to grasp. And then that does happen. Uh, you know, I'm working fast uh, in front of this microphone, kind of thinking on the fly. And maybe there's a part of the argument that I'm neglecting, and maybe that's making me irresponsible in some way, uh, or ignorant. Um, you know, and that's that's kind of part of it too. I can at times feel a certain responsibility to get angry. I can entertain that thought. Like, you know, is it my responsibility to get angry about these things? Uh, and and what's causing me to feel this? You know, sense of uh, should I get angry? You know, what's causing me to ponder whether or not I'm responsible? Usually, it's my computer. Or it's my television telling me that this is what I need to feel. And uh, I don't want to be angry. It's kind of like that bumper sticker, you know. It's like, if you're not angry, then you're not paying attention. Whenever I see that sticker, uh, I'm like, fuck it, you know. Then I don't want to pay attention. I'd rather be dumb and happy. I'm going to die soon. I don't have time for this shit. I don't want to get all worked up about what Jonathan Franzen thinks of Twitter or what Rush Limbaugh says on his stupid radio show. But then again, maybe if I don't pay attention, I'm somehow abnegating my responsibility as a citizen and actually ironically hastening my own demise by allowing the public discourse to be degraded and the media to be controlled by overlords and corporate stooges with diabolical war agenda. Maybe. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So we go 
from we go from the Philippines to Lamore, California, which is in the center of California. There's very little there. There's there's a lot of fog and a lot of flatness. Um, then we go to San Diego when I'm about three, and we stay there. And then when I turn eighteen, I move to uh, I move to Berkeley, go to college, then grad school in Oregon, then New Hampshire, then Wisconsin, and then back to San Francisco. Jesus. So okay, so we got we got to go kind of like step by step here. But you went to Berkeley. Like, well, first of all, like when you were, when you were a kid coming up in San Diego, in say the name of the city again or the town. Uh, Mira Mesa is the little community. Uh, it's like a suburban community in San Diego. Okay, so what was that experience like? Did you feel like uh, integrated, or did you feel like you were part of? I mean, it sounds like this community was pretty tight knit, and it was like you know it was Filipino community. Did you exist within that as like kind of a bubble, or did you feel like you were, you know, mixing with the rest of uh, the people in San Diego? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, I I felt like I was just sort of immersed in the everyday reality of that of that community. I mean, I did. There were so, and it's not just a, a prominent Filipino community. There's a prominent Vietnamese community. There's a an Indian American community. So, I, I think what was so great about it was, you know, I grew up. I grew up in in classes and neighborhoods that were so mixed. I didn't really get a sense of I didn't really get a sense of a hyphenated America. We were all we were all Americans, and 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 I'm you know I I think and I was very conscious of that actually growing up because my father always liked to remind me that I was American. He was very big on that. We never said Filipino American. Not that not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, he just. He seemed to want us to be very, very aware that we were American. And because I grew up believing that, I think, you know, all these other immigrant communities, to me, just seemed like everyday America. That was America to me. They, I, didn't, I didn't really make – obviously, you make the distinctions because of, you know, racial differences. Um, we all look different, but I didn't make those distinctions at all. It was, it was totally normal to have – um, a lot of kids in, in, in ESL, for example, in my class, in my classes. And that, that just, that felt very American. And I think, and I think that perspective, which I definitely owe to my father, cause I'm very glad to have that perspective. I'm very glad that that feels natural. Um, that definitely fuels the writing. Absolutely. I don't, I don't, I don't think if I hadn't had that, if, if I didn't have the relationship I have to that idea or to that definition of what American is, and, and the fact that I'm American, then that I don't hyphenate, not instinctively anyway, that, that's a big part of, of, of how I got to writing. Yeah, I mean, if that it, makes sense. It does. No, and it, you know, it reminds me like when my, uh, you know, my grandfather, who spoke fluent Italian, or at least some Italian, uh, wouldn't let my dad speak Italian. You right. Know, like none of his kids were taught Italian because he wanted them to speak English and be integrated. Yeah. And I feel like there's some similarities, you know, totally. like you're here now, this is the identity, the, you know, the national identity, and you want to be a part of it rather than feel separate Yeah. and embrace it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you can't, uh, I don't know, you can't deny where you come from. And I think if you're closer to the actual immigrant experience, if you're like one step removed from it, or, you know, in your case, you were born in the Philippines and came over, um, you know, you're still grappling with that in some sense, right? You're still trying to kind of, uh, you know, understand uh, how, na- like, national identity is defined and how you fit into the 
the tapestry of it, for lack of a better term. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, totally. And and I think I think I think it's especially not complicated, but maybe complex because you talked about your your grandfather, great grandfather, um, not wanting the children in the house to speak Italian, wanting them to speak English. Um, my parents raised me speaking English to me. But they spoke, to, and they still do, they, speak, they spoke Tagalog to my older siblings. And my older siblings speak Tagalog to each other, but they speak English to me. Um, because there are five kids, and we're all five years apart. So there's a 20-year span between me and my oldest brother. Oh, wow. So when, you know, when he immigrated, he's, well, he, well there's a 19-year spread. Um, he was 19. I was seven months old. You know, okay. my sister was 15. So you were the youngest. I was the youngest. Okay. And so it... Sometimes the differences that I see between me and some of my siblings almost feel they almost feel a little generational because they have such a so much of so much of who they are is is, is rooted in the Philippines and Filipino culture though they're very American um, but just having that having that difference in language and 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 having two different ways of everyday communication in one household. Two languages going on, um, and and language being used accordingly to whom you were speaking, um, it definitely made it definitely made it not confusing, but it just made it uh, more intricate. Now, do you feel like you had an easier time because you had the benefit of kind of being here from birth? Um, do you know what I'm saying? Like, was that an advantage in terms of like your ability to assimilate or your ability to understand yourself? And you know, do you, do you feel like your older siblings had maybe a harder time? Oh yeah, with identity because they had uh, stronger roots back in the Philippines. Um, I don't, I don't know if they had any challenges or struggles with this idea of identity or self-identification. Um, I mean, I came here when I was seven months old, so it was, it was very easy for me, obviously, um, but. I remember, I remember, I remember it being difficult for them. Like I remember, you know, my older siblings wanting to go out the way, you know, the American teenager goes out, um, wanting to do the things that American teenagers do. And, and they weren't able to do that. Uh, and I think it's because, you know, my parents still had, um, a Filipino cultural mindset of, you know, wanting to protect your kids. Kids don't go out. They don't go very far on their own. What's the yeah? What's the difference? Like, is there a critical difference in terms of how uh, teenagers, you know, are treated over there as opposed to here? Um, I can only really base it on my family and some of the families I knew. They were just sort of stricter in that kind of traditional immigrant sense. You know, you're new to the country. You want to be careful. You want to stay focused. You want to, you know, you're here for school. You're here to take things seriously and make a better life for yourself. They've certainly they certainly they certainly loosened up. Um, as as the years went by, another advantage for you. You're the young. Yeah. Right? Oh, oh my God! What I got away with? Um, I didn't do anything that bad. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was it was much easier for me. Okay, it had so, to be. Yeah. So now tell me about like just you as a kid. Like what what kind of kid were you? Uh, I tend to ask this of everybody who's on the show. I'm always curious about how writers form. Like, did you? Is it something you were drawn to early, or is it something you came to later in life? But like. Just paint a picture of who you were as a child. Okay, so let's say I'm, let's say I'm five years old. Uh, we go to the mall, and I see this giant chalkboard that has its own stand. I beg my parents to buy it for me, and they buy it for me. 
Um, I pretty much spend every day in my room with the door closed drawing these epic superhero scenes that I'll work on all day on this chalkboard. Um, I remember one drawing I did. I did the funeral of Batman. And so I had the bat casket in the middle of the chalkboard. And I had all the superheroes who were not able to fly surrounding the funeral I mean, surrounding the the bat casket weeping and all the all the superheroes who did have the power of flight flying above weeping um that to me that that's probably one of the strongest memories and images i have of my childhood i'd liked i liked being alone i liked being uh in my room um all i wanted all i really cared about were comic books, um, clean white paper. If I had paper that didn't have lines on it, I was so excited. If I could just draw on white paper. Um, I remember that was a big deal to me, to, to, to be able to draw on paper that had no lines on it, because otherwise I would draw notebook paper. Um, Your parents must have been thrilled. They're like, this kid's so easy. We just put him in his room with some white paper. <laughs> no, I remember. Oh, man, I remember I... I remember I got in trouble once. I was I was sitting in the family room this time, just drawing one of my one of my uh, epic superhero battle scenes, and my mom got mad at me for not going outside because I never played outside, um, and I you know I I wasn't very athletic. I I didn't get much exercise. I I didn't like I didn't really like socializing with other kids. I felt much more comfortable around adults and my older siblings than I did with other kids. Um, so were you like a morose kid, or is that, a, is that the wrong adjective? Like, were you, I mean, you don't seem like the kind of person who, who trends too, too, you know, dark or whatever. I, I was not, I was not morose, but, I, and I think I only recognize this because I have nieces and nephews, some of whom are very close in age to me. Um, but when I think about the way they grew up and being so comfortable with other kids and, and being comfortable with, you know, their friends' parents, um, and, and very, very trusting and optimistic. When I compare myself as a child to, to, to them, I, I realize I was, I think I was a kind of suspicious kid. I, I didn't, I didn't always assume people had the best of intentions. I mean, I wasn't paranoid, but, um, I think I was always aware of being coddled the way children can sometimes be coddled by adults. And behind that coddling, I sensed something insincere, maybe, or, or that they were trying tried. to they were trying to protect you from something. Like maybe, maybe, maybe. Because, like, I'm curious. Like, was there any kind of like event in your childhood that might have prompted you to be suspicious, or was it just something that you feel like you kind of instinctively picked up? I think I think I just sort of instinctively picked up. I mean, I wasn't paranoid, but I just. See, I was paranoid. You were paranoid? <laughs> did you have a conspiracy theory uh, coloring book? Yeah, I did, actually. I did. I had a, uh, you know, JFK assassination coloring book at the time. Um, I got to get a copy of that. Yeah, right. Uh, but no, no, that's interesting. And so, uh, you know, you say that you were drawn to the company of adults. I mean, maybe this is the product of having the older siblings, like the significantly older siblings sure. and being surrounded by them. Um, but when you went to school... You know, how did you interact? Were you sort of shy into yourself? And actually, no, I did pretty well in school, and I think I did well in school because I felt like, uh, you know, I always did the work, and I was, I always, I always knew the answer. I was for a long time throughout elementary school, at least, I was the kid who always knew the answer. So, so I felt comfortable in school because. Um, you knew what to say. I knew what to say. I was good at it. <laughs> it's a good kid to be in some ways, as long as you're not overbearing about it. Right. right. I, I don't. I don't think I was overbearing about it. But I can say though that um, 
being being with just just the just my classmates on the playground at the beginning i think was a very was a nervous thing for me i felt much more comfortable if we had adults in the vicinity i felt like they could maintain control they could sort of maintain a, a social hierarchy among among my classmates that would um that would that could still include me. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it's just like Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and maybe that's maybe that's part of where my suspicions, or yeah, maybe that's where it kind of came from. And, you know, in, in junior high, I was, you know, I was always one of the last guys picked for teams. So. Um, and do you remember that? I mean, was that like affecting? Like, I have, I think I was picked somewhere in the middle. You know, yeah. something like that. So, like, I had to take in the middle. Yeah, you would have taken the middle. <laughs> yeah. I guess when you're last, you remember it. Oh, you know? yeah. Like, I, I just, I feel like I have such a terrible memory of my youth in so many respects. But, like, you hear that story. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I was one of the last ones picked. And, like, that stays with people. Or, like, I mean, not in a way that's, like, crippling into right. adulthood or anything. But, you know, but it, in a way that is memorable. Yeah. And you and you clearly remember it. I do. I do. And it didn't, it didn't, I don't think, it, I don't know how much it bothered me at the time. But when I think of it now, like if if I were a teacher, I, I think that's one of the worst things you could do is to pick, you know, two people to be captains and let the and, and stand everyone else in a line and, ha- and you know, take your pick. I think I think that's awful. Oh, no. I mean, you have no idea. Like, because I, I was I remember junior high in Indiana, which in Indiana for, for of all the Midwestern states, like has a redneck quotient that like people I think underestimate. Like, yeah. There's a lot of there's a southernness to the to the state of Indiana despite its geography. It's right. in between Illinois and Ohio and but there's a southernness to it. And I know that because my parents come from the south and I've always been able to sort of identify the two. There's similarities. But I remember in seventh or eighth grade or seventh and eighth grade being in gym class and having to do wrestling. Ugh. Which was miserable. It is miserable. Because it's like, you know, you have to be like strong and you have to like physical combat yeah. essentially. <laughs> yeah. But I remember our gym teacher, who was just merciless, just lining us up and just sending us out there. It was like Thunderdome, and you had to wrestle. And there was this kid in my gym class who had epilepsy. Oh, my God. And who was tiny and weak and, uh, you know, physically weak and just couldn't compete. And, you know, and... Uh, but I mean, he would be sent out there against kids twice his size and would just get pummeled and like pummeled to the point where he would have a seizure. And I remember this, like, you know, uh, these are like horrible memories from gym class, but I mean, kids cheering, the you know, yeah. ch- children are evil, yeah. you know, and this oh, stuff yeah, happens. Absolutely. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I can think back to like multiple anecdotes where that poor guy just got pummeled uh, yeah. and it was just wrong. It's a, um, it's a fucked up system, you know, elementary school and junior high school PE. Yeah. I mean, the... I, I hate how I don't I don't know kids left to their own devices in that kind of context. I don't know. I don't know how good it is to to <laughs> give them that kind of power. I agree. Um, and I also you know it's it's like giving kids buying power. I hate that. I don't. I, maybe maybe it's because I don't have kids. But um, what do you mean by like the, the ability to actually make a purchase? Or yeah, to make a purchase and then therefore ultimately help determine the culture. You know, you give the, you give young people buying power, and suddenly soon, you know, um, you've got you've got iPhones or iPads being marketed to kids. You've got um, you know TV shows that are inane uh, being produced, and you've got people. You know, you have once respected journalists having to interview you know some teeny bopper uh, uh, pop star like the Justin guy. Justin Bieber, right? You know, 
I mean, I don't believe Barbara Walters, um, for whatever you think of my, of Barbara Walters, but I don't really believe Barbara Walters is thrilled with the fact that she has to interview Justin Bieber. I can't imagine. I mean, she used to view, she used to interview, she, I remember the interview, what, in the 70s with the Shah of Iran? It was a big, big interview, kind of like a landmark interview, because I've seen clips. And what, 30 years later, she's having to interview Justin Bieber. It's got to be <laughs> an intimate sit-down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, it's, I don't think that would happen if, if kids didn't have the ridiculous buying power that they do. Yeah, well, they're, and they're being marketed to from birth almost, oh, it yeah. seems like, you know. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think about uh, my daughter. Like, she's already, I mean, I've talked about this on the show before, but, I mean, she's already, like, fully integrated with an iPad. And, yeah. You know, it happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, talk about high school then, like as you moved in to high school, like did anything change? Were there significant shifts or high school? I think freshman year, I felt very much on the periphery. I think high school was a little bit nerve wracking just, you know, just because it was high school and when you're, you know, not necessarily that athletic and not necessarily that popular. I mean, I had some friends, but you know, I, I felt fairly comfortable on the fringe of things. Um, and, and let me stop you here. Like, what is it? I mean, this is such a masculine ritual, but what is it about sports? Uh, my buddies and I used to joke about this, like that the entire pecking order uh, of our class, you know, and this goes back actually to like elementary school, but it tended to be decided upon like foot speed. Yeah. It was like this kid can run the fastest, so all of a sudden, like he gets all this power. You know, yeah. <laughs> like it's like I don't. How understand. did that happen? I don't know. Like, I hate for some it. reason, like physical prowess, like the ability to, uh, you know, shoot a basketball or run fast or whatever it might ha- you know might be. Right. That is somehow the determining factor for little boys in particular. Well, pro- probably because it's so easy to assess, and it's so easy to. But that's depressing. It is it's depressing. Like it's got to be that simple. It's like we're yeah. like cavemen, <laughs> right? Like, and I, maybe it's because you know you see someone running fast, you can you think, okay, he runs really fast. I would like to run that fast. I cannot outrun him. Yeah, he will I cannot catch outrun. me. Right, he will beat me. Right. Whereas you you see someone, some kid who's really good at calculus, that's harder. I think that's harder to assess. It's probably harder to figure out how to get good at calculus. Yeah. I was not good at calculus. I never even took calculus. Oh, you didn't? Okay. No, I failed out of... I probably shouldn't admit that. Uh, That's all right. <laughs> failed out of... Uh, I have some tissues here. Okay. <laughs> yeah, my, my Barbara Walters moment. That's um, right. I failed out of senior college... Oh, senior, uh, senior high school math. Advanced... What was it? Discrete topics in mathematics. Uh-huh. To this day, I don't know what a discrete topic is. Yeah, or why we had to be discreet. I have no idea. Yeah, about mathematics. Sounds secretive. Sounds, sounds military. I know. I was very open with my mathematics. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think I failed. I failed uh, calculus my second semester of my senior year. But I just completely. I just remember I got into college and I was so sick of school. And I had done well in mm-hmm. school. Like I was actually a really good student in junior high uh, in high school. At least until like the second two years of high school when I started to get tired of it. But I remember. Uh, you know, what was it? I guess it was beginning calculus, but I just remember being like, I'm going to fail this on purpose. And uh, I did. <laughs> and it didn't matter, you know, but I, I just remember my teacher like kind of begging me to do anything. And I I was just at that point done. Like, did you, was that any part of it for you? Did you find your like interest flagging toward the end of high school? Yes. Like your energy levels? Like yes. I, I don't know. I, I always felt that way. Like I always say, I wish in American culture that gap years were more commonly, uh, you know, was more commonly acceptable. But right. 
you know, I could have, I think I could have benefited. I needed like, a, I needed some time to just not be a student for a year. Well, I think by the time I failed out of that math class, I was, I'd already gotten my college acceptance. So I just felt like, okay. Same thing. I'm in. Yeah. I'm done with this. Yeah. You can't make me do anything. Right. <laughs> like, uh, you, where did you go to school? I went to Colorado in Boulder. How's that? Uh, it was, you know, it was good. I wasn't, I was a complete, uh, you know, because I didn't have a gap year, I think I got there and was just like trying to pretend like I was taking one, even though I was fully enrolled in classes. I mean, the first two years were a wash. Yeah. Um, I was not a committed student in the way that I was like when I, you know, frankly, I've I've always been more committed in in a self-directed way, you know, after high school, um, graduate school, I was really zeroed in, but you know, my first couple years at Boulder were (laughs) a bit of a bit foggy. Would you, uh, and for grad school, you studied? I got my MFA at oh, USC, okay. yeah. So I did film school as an undergrad and then went to, uh, you know, USC and got my MFA in creative writing. But uh, I was not a committed college student. I was having yeah. lots of fun, but I just wasn't really serious about it in the way that um, some people were, you know. And I don't know. I, I, I'm of mixed emotions about that. Like, I'm really glad that I had the fun that I had. Yeah. Because I had a lot of fun, like a lot. But I also look back. Just at the, the college application process and how disinterested I was in that. Like, I, I, I'm lucky I even applied to any schools. And I had, like, you know, almost a 4.0 and good SAT. I mean, I had everything you need to, to get into a good school. And I didn't even bother applying to hardly any schools. I applied to, like, Indiana and Colorado and then, like, did, like, the University of Virginia in ink by hand. <laughs> you know, like, it was just like, it was an absurdly weak effort. And I look back on that sometimes and I'm like, why, why did I do all that work and not apply to like, you know, some Ivy league school or something like that. But I just had no interest. I didn't want to go to school anymore. It was weird. I was, I was pretty obsessed with getting into a good school, but I didn't know why I was obsessed with getting into a good, I, I think it's because I, I felt like I was supposed to. But once I got to college, I, I, I did okay. It's funny. I don't know how seriously I took it, but I really cared about my GPA, which is strange. Like, I took an extra semester of college just so I could raise my GPA a little bit. And my GPA was fine, but I just wanted it What did to, you have? What kind of GPA are you talking? I graduated, and it's not that great, but I at least wanted a 3.5. So I think I graduated like a 3.5, 3.6. And had I not taken that extra semester, extra semester it would have been like a 3-2. And I... I couldn't deal with the with the idea of not at least having a three five. Yeah, and I don't know why I was so obsessed with it because the only classes I really really cared about were were my creative writing classes, which I didn't take until my senior year in college anyway. Is that um, when the light like really went on and you got serious about writing? I mean, yeah, that was it. Yeah, it was. So it I mean, wasn't. But but I mean, you you had started with this uh, you know white pad and with the. Um, you know, the the superhero drawings and the comic books and everything else, like that continued through high school and into college. But you didn't start to like really function as an artist in a serious way until the end of Berkeley. Yeah, I would say that's right. And and even my interest in comic books and drawing definitely waned by the time I was like a freshman in, in high school. Um, so I really wasn't doing anything really creative. I mean, I did... I did a little, I did, you know, the high school plays and things like that. Um, you performed but, in them? Yeah. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. I was. Like, can you I'm, sing and stuff? Uh, I can carry a tune. I was Mr. McAfee in Bye Bye Birdie, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the one, ma- the, the guy played by Paul Lind in the movie. I was, uh, I was the white bigoted Lieutenant Shrank in West Side Story, <laughs> which is, you know, a bit of, 
casting innovativeness. <laughs> and it pissed me off because that was like one of three non-singing, non-dancing roles. So back then I couldn't sing. Um, I, 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 can, I can carry a tune, but that's about it. Do you, take, yeah, vo- do you take voice lessons or anything? No, no. Okay. I mean, I'm like your, 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 your occasional karaoke singer. You right. might have a couple songs that he can sing adequately. I have a buddy who swears by karaoke as a way to uh, hook up with women. He can sing. He has a song. I mean, it's like so. You know, it's just like his little scheme or whatever. But he, he swears up and down that it's like a, it's a home run. He gets out there and he sings, and I don't know. It works. I, you know, I think it does work because when you're like at a karaoke bar and and you see someone really carrying a tune or at least performing it in a way that you can relate to, there's yeah, there's something totally hot about that. Yeah, well, the, well, there's that, and then. Uh, you know, in Los Angeles, at least, there's so many people with such talent. Like, they might not have, like, A-grade talent, but they're, like, B-plus singers, which is, like, better than just about everybody. Yeah. And they're at a karaoke bar, and they're, like, really, really good. Yeah. Like, I've seen people just down at the farmer's market singing on a Friday night where you're like, why, you know, why does this person not have a record deal with Right. Me? But uh, I actually have, uh, interestingly, uh, like, a, one of the, you know, like, a very strong memory that I have uh from when I was over in Europe, I was in Paris once, and I, w- I wound up in this karaoke bar. And this, I was just kind of standing at the bar because it was right near where I was staying, and I just wanted a drink. And I didn't know anybody, and I just like I just happened to go in there and, and was standing there. This old guy comes in, and he looks totally out of place. He's dressed in like a three-piece suit, and he's got like a white beard and mustache, and he looks like really dignified. And I noticed him right away because it was mostly just like college kids and locals or whatever in this bar. And the guy, uh, next thing I know, winds up going up to the stage, and he sings uh, Frank Sinatra's My Way in, like, this, like, you know, booming, like, baritone perfectly. Yeah. And he brought the house down. And everyone, like, I mean, I was, like, moved by it. Well, that song carries a lot of power. Do you know know about My Way in the Philippines? No, uh uh-uh. Oh, this was actually an article in the New York Times. And And I knew about this phenomenon before the article. The story is, you, if you're in a if you're at a karaoke bar in the Philippines, you don't you don't sing my way because if you sing my way, someone gets shot. And on several occasions, they have it on record that my way or or the way a particular singer sang my way caused so much anger in one of the listeners that 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 you know it it, it, it would inspire somebody to to shoot the singer. It was inciting violence. This is like hip yeah. hop almost. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's our hip hop. No, but, I'm, I but mean, it, yeah, it was in the Times. It's crazy. You don't sing my way. But what is it about that song? That song seems fairly like inspiration, or not even. Yeah. It's kind of a lament. It seems yeah, like. Yeah, I don't know. I'm my guess, and this is just a guess. Maybe maybe Sinatra is much bigger in the Philippines than I ever realized, and that. He's sort, of, do he's sort of gangster. I mean, you know, kind of. Yeah, got a little bit of mafia. Absolutely. <laughs> if, I guess if you're gonna if you're gonna do Sinatra, then you you better do it right. Yeah. Don't do it your way. Do it his way. Right. I think that's the message. But well, um, no. and I, I always want to write a story about that. I feel like there's a story in there somewhere. Well, well no, and that's a good place to kind of launch into your work because there is this kind of collision uh, with pop culture that happens in your fiction. Yeah. You know, it informs your fiction. Like, can you talk about the role that pop culture plays in how you develop? Um, your work like how you know how does it inform it well i think the way we view pop culture here in america and the way pop culture is viewed in the philippines uh it's very different um i don't think i don't think that there's the way we might view something as 
campy, let's say, like a variety show or a, a beauty pageant. Um, some of us, anyway, might view it as, as kind of campy. That sense of irony, which which to me feels very American, there's there's not too much of that 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 I can see in the Philippines. So that um, not too much of the irony. Yeah, yeah, and so like you might have, um, let's say. Uh, um, like Imelda Marcos, you know, she says these the the most ridiculous things, and obviously they might make fun of her now. Um, but the story help in my book, which is about a bunch of guys who uh, supposedly the Beatles in 1966 when they were in Manila, supposedly they said something lewd about Imelda Marcos. So uh, some so some Imelda Marcos supporters decided that they were going to beat the Beatles up right before they boarded their plane. And it's a true story. It actually happened. You watch the Beatles documentary. I think it's Ringo who says, I hated the Philippines. Um, so just that, that the, the, the kind of attitude that, that I think Filipinos have towards certain pop culture things, there's, um, I feel like there's a lot of sincerity that we might understandably chuckle at. Um, I'm interested in this idea of trying to, trying to, to show the sincerity and the heartfelt emotion of things that we might see as campy. And then what about like the, the role of, of pop culture in terms of how it informs uh, the immigrant experience? Like, does that play into it at all? Like, I feel like sometimes when, um, you know, it depends and it works, it works both ways. It's just that, I mean, it works when at the level of travel, it works at the level of actual cultural integration. But, you know, when you're getting to know a culture, um, you embrace its popular culture. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like that's a way to. That's sort of a way in. It's Absolutely. a way. It's a way to learn the language and you know understand um, how things function. You know, yeah. the, the inner life of the people or whatever. Like, do, is that a part of it? Like in in terms of like your implementation, like you know, or the, at least like the way that your characters uh, confront it. You know, do you do you feel like that's a part of it? Um, I see what you're saying, and I've always felt that way. I mean, when I think about my family's immigrant experience, you've got a family of seven, um, some of whom don't don't know the language. Y- you bet we're going to watch TV. Well, that's no, what we did. It's like it's like uh, how else are we going to take part in it? Right. Know? It's like Splash when she learns how to speak by oh, watching TV. <laughs> she shatters all the yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, like, there's something to <laughs> right? that. There's something yeah. to that. You yeah. Know? Because it's it's not like. Because I, you know, I've been in foreign countries, and like I'll be watching TV in, in a language that I don't speak, uh, and I think there's there's something uh, smart about doing that. It's a good way to learn. It is, and it's a way to sort of it's a way to immerse yourself in the culture without having to worry, you know, over whether you're doing it correctly. You can just sort of you can just sit there and witness it, and to some extent, you can participate in it. You can you know play along. You can you can you can guess the puzzle. In Wheel of Fortune, from this, from from your own, from your own living room couch. And Pat Sajak's not going to like start castigating you if you get it wrong. Yeah, <laughs> although he might find a way. Yeah. Right. <laughs> what was that? I just read recently that he was used to be drunk on the air. Did you read that? Yeah, yeah. That might be a good story for you. You know, maybe, you know? maybe. It seems like he would be sort of a sloppy drunk. <laughs> I think he would be. <laughs> um, so you know, okay. So like. To try to continue the timeline a bit, you know, you, t- you start to take writing seriously. Mm-hmm. Was this your senior year? Like senior year in college, yeah. Okay, so what was like the, the big engaged reading experience or, or reading experiences of your um, late adolescence, early adulthood? Like, do you can you look back and point to a particular period of time when you were reading books that really launched you and kind of set you on your course? 
and like opened up your brain and said, you know, and made you realize that this is what you wanted to do? Um, none of, I, I certainly read as a kid and in high school, but I don't think I read anything that made me want to be a writer. Um, I don't think that happened until, until college, but I mean, I can say, I mean, growing up, I, I can think of children's books that I loved that, that in a way I think are crucial to like, like what do you, can you, Ramona the pest. Okay. Beverly Cleary. Cause I remember yeah. even at that age, we had this protagonist who we were supposed to understand was flawed. She was so flawed. I mean, just look at the title. She was a pest. And she did so many bad things. And I remember thinking, God, this kid does bad things in kindergarten that I can I cannot imagine doing. And yet I was very conscious of the fact that I liked her. Right. And that I liked the I liked this kind of bad kid better than the other kids who did things right. And I think that's uh, yeah, you're gonna be a fiction writer. That's that's a crucial thing to learn, you know. Well, no, and it's like yeah, you like I, I you know I always like to joke that like Shel Silverstein, and I'm not even really joking, um, but you know his work is for so many people like their introduction to subversive literature. Yeah, like there are certain characters or there are certain writers, you know, it can it can be for children too. You yeah. know, it's kind of a pattern. I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then, as you got into college, like it, was there were there books that you read during that period that really. Um, had a huge impact, or writers in particular that you found yourself wanting to emulate? Um, when I was a junior in college, I, t- to fulfill my English requirement, I had to take a class called English 180E, which you know changed topics semester to semester. When I took it, it was the history of the short story taught by somebody named Bharati Mukherjee, and I'd never heard of this person, Bharati Mukherjee. And it turned out she was this very, very established fiction writer, Indian-American woman, um, who'd won the National Book Critics Circle Award a couple of years before. So I decided, well, I'm, I'm curious about her stuff. I read The Middleman and Other Stories, which is uh, the first short story collection I think I ever read in full, and was just blown away by how she took on the perspectives of people so different from herself. I mean, certainly there are stories in there from the points of view of Indian women, Indian American women, but there are, you know, white Vietnam vets. Uh, there are Filipino, like aristocratic Filipino women in there. It's it's this uh, women from Trinidad. It's someone, this idea that she stepped outside of her own immediate experience or what I assume would be her immediate, you know, her own immediate experience. And just so compassionately, tried to render the experiences of, of these other people, I thought was just one of the most amazing, admirable things you could do. And I've, I actually felt myself trying to emulate that. I, and, I yeah, didn't, I, and I didn't do it very well. Well, but still, no, I'm just hearing you say that. Like, I feel like, um, you know, starting with myself, like, I need to do more. Of that. I'm just thinking, you know, I'm thinking to myself, God, I'm so self-centered. Like, so much of my fiction is it's so limited in scope in that way. So much of what I write is, like, so self-focused. But... Uh, it's also got to be really difficult. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's just, it's it's like you say, it's kind of like a heroic act of empathy, like to really, you know, extend outside of yourself, you know, not only to other people, but across cultures and to completely different experiences. Yeah. It's not easy to do. Yeah. But, I, I don't do it. I, but I, it's a function, but it's also a function of experience. I mean, like, you know, I think it's like on a broader level, it seems like it might be an issue with American literature um, or at least that's the way that it's, I think it seems to be characterized by a lot of the rest of the world where they just feel like American literature isn't as interested in other cultures or in yeah. other parts of the world. And I think there's some truth to that. Like right. we're not a well-traveled people. Like they're not a lot, there's not a lot of bilingualism, uh, you know, at least compared to other countries. And, you know, there's something sort of, uh, insular about it. And yeah. I think that maybe 
that's a weakness. I think so. You know, I mean, not that there isn't strong uh, literature, you know, not that there's not like a rich tradition here, but like you do look at certain uh, writers, you know, from other countries and their ability to kind of cross borders, you know, Mm -hmm. in their work and uh, to write in a really like authentic and powerful way about other people's uh and you don't see that maybe as much or maybe i'm just not reading the right people <laughs> no i don't i don't see it as much and and you know and I, I i would say i'm probably guilty of the same thing i mean i'm writing about filipino filipino americans i mean i'm i'm trying to do that within that context um i you know young girls stricken with leprosy Old old men evicted from their uh, that's good tenement. So I'm, I'm <laughs> You're trying. Stretching. I'm trying. But I mean, you know what? Like, look, look. Let's flip it around and play the devil's advocate. Like, maybe you know, maybe it's not some sort of criminal fault to write what you know or like write from your immediate experience. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, I just think that I, I guess maybe I just have great admiration for people who not only write that way, but I'm I'm sure have to be immersed in some way uh, in life with lots of different people and right. I, I sort of envy that you know because I'm, I'm a person who loves to travel and like I, I love living in Los Angeles for that reason like just being in a place where, where things are um, you know so mixed culturally it's yeah. fun you know I find that interesting and like uh, I find there to be a lot of like vitality in that but I don't engage with it enough just because I'm so damn busy right. know, or whatever it is you know right well like most of us yeah it's hard so I guess I just think you know, a part of it is just flat out envy and either for their, their lives themselves or for their uh, you know ability to imagine you know yeah I mean I I don't want to say that it's a there's there's more valor in that than than writing about something that closely resembles your own experience right um and, and frankly, I think the reason I don't write anything autobiographical is because my life hasn't been that interesting, uh, or I just don't have a very good lens through I think which it sounds to view interesting. my own life. Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'll give it a shot then. <laughs> um, but um, you know, I it's it's uh, yeah, it's just I've, I it's just never occurred to me to write about my life. But you know, it but it does surprise me when I teach like these introductory workshops. Um, to, uh, to to my undergrads, it does surprise me how quickly they, the, the, how, how their instinct is to write about college-age people in, you know, relationships, romance, yeah. um, drug use. It's, it's, it's strange that that is the, the instinct or the default. Because I think, God, if you're writing fiction, wouldn't you want to get away from yourself as much as possible? But, but hopefully still still write about what matters to you emotionally. But people ask me, I've been giving, re- I'm, I'm on this little reading tour right now, um, a, lot, a question I've been getting a lot of is, you know, do you write about your own life? Are these stories based on your own life? And if you read the the plots, they're, they're kind of out there. So none of it's autobiographical, but it's all emotionally and psychologically autobiographical. And if, and if, uh, if I didn't feel the things that my characters feel, if I didn't wonder the things that my characters wonder, I, I don't know how I would write. And I just, I would think, I tend to think that's almost true for every writer that 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 they're that they're writing about things emotionally or psychologically that that they've felt or wondered or at least are curious to know more about so okay so then because like there are there seems like there are a couple you know this is this is to reduce it a little bit too simply but like there are writers who write fiction that is very close to their own experience yeah almost like memoir i mean almost indiscernible with like you know some tweaks here and there and then there are writers like you know, like you, who are um, 
maybe engaging more in like the fantastical or taking on people uh, of different ages or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of remove yourself from the equation uh, physically, yeah. if that's the way to put it. But you're still right there emotionally. Yeah. Like, w- do you ever think to yourself, like, why, you know, that, do, do you understand why you need that separation? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, whereas someone else can be like, I'm just going to write quote unquote fiction, mm-hmm. which closely resembles my own experience. Uh, and then you see yourself and you say, well, I'm, I'm going to do it, but I need to be at a remove from it in order to engage with my emotional world in a way mm-hmm. that feels authentic. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I guess the reason I, I need that sense of removal, why it's the reason it's so instinctive to me is because, you know, I wish I had a, I wish I had a more complex answer, but it, it just seems more fun to, to write about other people and That's to write answer. about, and to write about premises that are so extreme or outrageous or even ludicrous um and then the, and then to 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 challenge to take on the challenge of, of whether or not you can actually pull that off you know can i can i write a love story about two lepers in the leper colony falling in love that's not a comedy by the way um <laughs> can i actually do that convincingly can i can i convince a reader that the guy who orchestrates the attack on the beatles you know as deluded as he might be can i at least convince the reader that his intentions are good and that those intentions are relatable when you stop to understand the real psychological and emotional motivation behind that ludicrous plan. I, I, I like that challenge. And then that's, is that how stories start for you? Like what, or, or, you know, or if you're, I think you're working on a novel now. Is I'm that, working on a novel right now. I mean, is that cause like I've, I've, you know, I've heard you talk about, um, you know, you read something and you read about this guy who wanted to attack the Beatles. Yeah. You know, or you'll read something about, uh, you know, old Filipino cinema yeah. or something, and that'll be the spark. Like, is that usually, is it some sort of, like, research process, whether it's uh, intentional or accidental, that gets it started? Or do you have, like, a character that just kind of flowers in your mind and starts to kind of be persistent? Yeah. Uh, you know, how does it work? Or does it work in a variety of ways? It usually works through the way you first, uh, what you first said. Um, if I'm lucky enough to stumble across some interesting incident that comes from history or some interesting, you know, current event that seems already ripe with the material that I'm interested in, which is, you know, the, the, what I call the clash and meld of Filipino culture and American culture, East and West. Um, if I can see that tension already there, I'll take hold of it and I'll try to figure out, okay, who, who can populate this, this emotional dramatic space um, like for example, the, the title story is called monstrous and, um, it's about the, the making of a really bad horror movie that is literally the splicing of a Filipino movie with <laughs> a bad American movie. And that's actually based on a real film. I was on a website years ago, um, where they listed the, some of the worst movies of all time. And these particular critics voted this movie called, I think the horror of the blood monsters as the worst movie of all time. And it literally, it literally was a splicing of, uh, of a Filipino caveman horror film and an American sci-fi film. And I thought, okay, who are, who could possibly be behind this and what would the repercussions be? How, how could they actually get to the, to the place where they think this is a good idea? And so I, um, I tried writing it from the point of view of the Filipino director, but, uh, he was just too, 
it can be done, obviously, but for me, he was just too extreme. So I needed a little set, a little bit of distance, but someone who could still be equally invested um, in the venture, but for different emotional reasons. So I created his leading lady, Riva Gogo, who starred in in the old movies, but now has a chance to star in uh, in the in the American movie. Gaz Gasman. Gaz Gasman. That's right. Yeah. Great name. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, did you go to the Philippines? Have you been? I've been twice. Well, I was born there. We left when I was seven months. I went back when I was seven years old, and I went back when I was 27 years old. Okay. Because, like, this is a challenge for me in my own work right now. It's like, whether you know, whether or not you need to go to a place in order to write it. And I think, I don't think you do. I think some people have written fiction about places they've never been to before in a way that fools everybody. Yeah. Um, but personally, I sort of feel a need to see it. Like, yeah. you feel like... You could be writing stories that at least partially take place in the Philippines had you never been there, at least at an age when you could actually, you know, perceive it and remember, you know, do you feel like that was yeah. critical to your ability to kind of like, you know, uh, factor it into your fiction? You know, when, when I went back when I was 27, I, I went back because my mother was visiting and I wanted to see her with her, with her, with her sisters, which I never really got to see growing up. But I also knew, okay, this is a writing opportunity. This is a chance to do research. So I brought, you know, brought my laptop, all, all pen and paper, and I thought I was just going to get so many details out of it. Um, I actually found it pretty debilitating. I found myself so bound by by what I saw, by trying to remain accurate in every way, that it just it just wasn't useful to me. Um, in fact, the only I shouldn't say only because it was an important detail. The most important thing, or the only thing I got from it. From that, the only the only piece of research that I used um, in my book um, happened is from the airport when I when I left to come to come back to California. Um, there's there was a sign that said "No well wishers beyond this point," and in my story "Help," the narrator um, we learn his mother took a vacation to the states. Those kids in the Philippines, we learn that his mother took a vacation to the states, but she never came back. And that first time, when, when she leaves, he tries to cross the gate with her, but then a security guard grabs him and points to the sign that says, no well-wishers beyond this point. And the narrator's thinking, no, that doesn't apply to me. I don't wish her well at all. I don't, I don't wish her anything good. <laughs> I want her to stay. And I just thought that was such a, I love that line, no, no well-wishers beyond this point. It's like, if you're wishing them well, why don't they get to take a few steps farther? <laughs> right. um, so that, that was a really wonderful detail. For me, and I actually think helped me really figure out that narrator. But in terms of landscape, in terms of um, of um, I don't know, you know, yeah, geography, landscape, all that stuff. It didn't. I could do that stuff with. Uh, I can do that stuff with books. That's not to say it's not important to go to a place you're writing about. I clearly you could benefit from it. It it. I don't think it necessarily was that helpful to me. Okay. So then about, uh, just about the actual writing of the book and then the publishing process. Like you were a Stegner fellow yes, at I was Stanford. A, yeah. Is that where you wrote this? I wrote half the stories at Stanford and I wrote half the stories, um, as an undergrad, I was sorry, in grad school at the university of Oregon. Okay. So how did it go? You went from Berkeley to Oregon to Stanford, Berkeley, Oregon, Phillips Exeter Academy, where I was the writer in residence at the boarding school, and then University of Wisconsin, where I had a creative writing fellowship, and then Stanford, where I got the Stegner. Wow. So that's a pretty good, that's a pretty prestigious fellowship. Only a few people get those. I mean, that's just like, go write. Yeah, it's great. It. It's great. I mean, um, it's, it's a tremendous gift, and you sort of can't believe that 
you actually got one. How does it work? I mean, when you get there, is it just like, here's the keys to your place, go go to work? Or do you have like a support system and people to talk to? And Well, it feels a little bit like grad school again because you have a workshop you go to. That's okay. your that's your obligation. You go to workshop once a week. Okay. And then you get this wonderful stipend. You have the opportunity to teach if you want. Um, and, you know, we, hopefully you take part in the community. You go to readings, lunches, things like that. It's, it's amazing. It's really, really terrific and really uh, I'm very, very grateful to them. Um, but it does have that, that kind of structure that I think is helpful. I mean, I've been in situations where I've gotten a fellowship, which I'm so lucky to receive, but I have 24 hours to write seven days a week. And that isn't always the best scenario for me. Why not? Uh, just too much too time. Much time. <laughs> I appreciate it now, though, of course, because now I'm, yeah. you know, now I teach full time. And last yeah. year I was on sabbatical all last year, which was great. And it was great to have that kind of to have that kind of freedom. And I very much at that point, I very much understood the value of that. And I would love to I'd love to have it again. I'll have it again this summer. I get my summers off. So where, now where are you teaching now? I teach at St. Mary's College in Moraga, which is near Walnut Creek. So it's, I live in San Francisco. It's about a 45 minute drive. So you drive out there and commute or whatever? Yeah, about two or three times a week, so it's not too bad. But yeah. I do have to go over the bridge, and I have bridge fear sometimes. So. Do you? Yeah, you know, the terrorists. Yeah, well, no, my mom, uh, <laughs> you know, when I was a little, little kid, we lived in Concord for like two years. Oh, yeah. And I remember my mom saying she was always a little freaked out when she was like stuck in traffic on the bridge. Yeah. Just for an earthquake. I mean, yeah. This was like pre, obviously pre-terrorist. Uh, well, not pre-terrorist, but pre-major concern, right. you know, or whatever about that. So, um but those, you know, I guess the, what is it? The Bay Bridge is sort of shaky, right? Are they both shaky? I feel like one of them is really earthquake ready. <laughs> well, yeah, in 89, I don't think the Bay Bridge was earthquake ready. Right. I wasn't there yet, but that's that's my understanding. Mm. And you like living in San Francisco? I love it. It's, you know, it's expensive. Yeah. It's really, really expensive. And, yeah. uh, you know, you work your tail off. You, you think, you know, I'd like to buy a house and... You can't. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a little frustrating, but it's a really, really, it's, it's kind of an amazing city. Yeah. No, it's a, I think it's the most beautiful American city. Yeah. It's hard to beat. I think like it's in, hard to beat. Like the combination of everything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when we were talking earlier, like just to kind of bring this full circle, um, you know, you spoke about your childhood in San Diego and the way in which you felt like you were a part of... Um, I don't know. You, you were you were exposed to so many different cultures, and you were kind of right there uh, in the middle of all this, and it felt normal. Yeah. But then, you know, when you uh, leave that, you go to Berkeley, which is similar. You know, mm-hmm. there's a similar diversity in the Bay Area, and ex- you know, it's a, it's a uh, it's a, an accepting culture. But then you go into the middle of the country, you know, where I was raised, and it's yeah. different. I mean, oh yeah. So how was that experience for you? Like when you start going to places like. Um, Phillips Exeter or Madison or uh, where else? I guess Oregon. Um, Indiana. I go to Indiana. Oh, Indiana, yeah. yeah. So you know. You yeah. know, you know. I mean, what is – can you talk about that at all? Like what was that experience like for you? Um, well, I always – inevitably I play count the minority. I'll, I'll go to a grocery <laughs> store and usually, you know, often the number is one and I'm usually pointing at myself. Um, uh, you know, I, I've never had a – I've never had a really bad experience. I don't. I don't feel though as though I've ever been discriminated against. But I can say, you know, those years when I lived in New England, lived in in Madison, which is very, which is pretty diverse. Um, but 
when I hear Tagalog being spoken, is that especially an, that's the... It's pronounced Tagalog. I say Tagalog. But it's spelled like Tagalog almost. It's spelled, it's, it's spelled like Tagalog. Tagalog, Tagalog, yeah. but I... That's, I, what I, that's how I say it, yeah. Tagalog. Tag- Tagalog I, would be the way to say it with okay. a Filipino accent. Yeah. Um, if I hear it being spoken, I become very... Um, I guess I get homesick, not for the Philippines, but for for San Diego, for home, for my mother's house. Sure. Um, and I realize that um, that really is not part of that. It, it, it's not a prominent part of the everyday culture or reality of those particular places. And that not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's that's a little hard for me to um, to uh, flourish in. Let's say. Um, Sometimes, sometimes just, sometimes just seeing, you know, different faces of different colors, shapes, whatever. Sometimes even just seeing it, knowing it's there. I feel comforted. I feel that way. Like living in a big city. Like I like that. I feel comforted by that. And I feel like some, some people feel the opposite, you know? Yeah. Um, but for me, I get uncomfortable when, when it's too homogenous or what I feel, you know, it's it's, absolutely, it's less and it's less fun. Yeah, it is less fun, you know, or at least less interesting or something about it. But um, what was it like being at Phillips Exeter? I had a, I, I want to say it was Roxanne Gay. She went there. I had her, on, her on, as a guest on the show. And, like, I'm endlessly fascinated with those schools on the East Coast. Like, wh- what was it like to see that up close? It was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the word. Um, it, was a, it was a great fellowship. I mean, they gave me an apartment. They gave me a beautiful office, and I just had to be there and write. I just, I wrote. I had to give two readings. That was my only real duty. You didn't have um, to teach. I didn't have to teach. I didn't even know they had that. Yeah. So you just, you're just, you're just hanging out on campus. Yeah. You have no interaction with the students. Not unless you want to. It's crazy, and you can eat, and you, all your meals are provided if you want to eat in the dining hall, and the food is plenty good. So. Oh my god! I, see, I need to apply. For I know. More see, shit. now I would appreciate it. Now I want to apply again. Right. Um, so, <laughs> Um, and there's just one of these every semester or something? Every year. It's called the George Bennett Fellowship, and they pick one fellow for the year. It's it's tremendous. Um, and I'd love to, I'd love to do it again. Um, it was it's, – it's, it's a trip, you know? I mean, you see so much – the wealth is quite obvious in terms of the student body. Um, the things that they have access to, um, their libraries, you know, their food – like what was the food like there? Um, the food wasn't amazing, but I mean, I remember one of my first meals, just standing in line with my tray, I was asked, now, would you like mint jelly with your lamb? And I'm like, I don't remember eating like this in my cafeteria. No, we had like Salisbury steak. <laughs> yeah, and, like, if you were lucky. Gra- and gravy from right. like a vat. Right. Know, if you were, it was like prison food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on. It's it's very nice. And and it, you know, I I you think about, you know, students who who aren't well-fed and how detrimental that is to their being able to learn, their being able to, you know, be educated, and then just to see this kind of food provided. Even just something like that was just quite a trip. I was also surprised, though, at how it was much more diverse than I thought. And a lot of the, they had a decent number of kids, from my understanding, who were on scholarship, um, which made it a little more uh, diverse economically and, and even ethnically. Um, but... You know this this whole culture of of, of uh, young people in their coats and ties sitting around this beautiful table in this beautiful classroom. It's uh, <laughs> so so far removed from my yeah. high school experience. Yeah, I don't. It's wonderful. I, I, it, it's wonderful, but uh, it, it it seems um, 
It almost seemed like a fantasy world to me. See, Obviously not to them, but to I, me. I mean, I get it. I get it. You want to have like a, like a fantastic elite high school experience. But I am just – I'm going through this now because I'm a parent. But it's like I find myself recoiling from the notion that we can't just have like an elite public school system. Yeah, I know. Why can't we? I know. Like we got all this money in this country. Like why can we not figure out how to put together – an elite public school system that everybody has access to where everybody can have mint jelly with their land right. or whatever, you know? Like, why does it have to be the, the kind of the provenance of uh, people with privilege? It drives me crazy. Yeah, it sucks. It really I sucks. I don't like it. I don't either. And I'm, you know, I mean, did you go to public school? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I went to public college and at Berkeley. I mean, there are like 40,000 students there, 50,000. You you fend for yourself. Right. I mean, you've got, you've got a problem with your financial aid you better go figure it out. Right. You better find the right the right line to line up in, and don't assume that they're going to uh, hold your rush. hand. Yeah, I have, uh, a buddy, I have a buddy who lost his uh, he lost his financial aid for that reason. Yeah, he was like a freshman. His parents weren't super involved in his uh, life. He, he was a really bright guy. He had uh, you know some financial aid, but he forgot to file a paper on the right day. Yeah, and it was like you're out. Yep. And he was like, well, you know, wait a minute, and he was out. Yeah, you, you know? better learn. And I like, I don't know, I like this idea of you, you, you sort of, life should, I, I, I'm i not that my life was all that difficult, but I, be, I believe in the in the valor of hardship, you know, of, in, in things being complicated and, and, you know, having those moments of hopelessness, but realizing you've got to find your way out of it. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it shouldn't be too damn easy. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think I don't that's think healthy so. for somebody when it's like, re, I mean... You know, look, everybody gets a break. Do you right. know what I'm saying? He needs a break to get wherever you're going, whether it's like you get to be a writer in residence or you get into graduate school, whatever it is. You yeah. know what I'm saying? You, you have moments that kind of help you along your way. Every writer does. But, I mean, when it's just all completely paved with gold. You know? Right. Like, yeah. I don't think that that ultimately – I don't think that can be positive. Or maybe I'm just hoping that it's not. <laughs> I, I think I'm hoping that it's not. Yeah, I, just, right. I don't know. I, I, I think I tend to agree with you. So what about uh, going forward? You know, you're working on this novel. You're teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see your career unfolding? How would it unfold if, if you had your way? <laughs> oh, geez. How do you answer that? I don't know. Like, it, what's your ambition? Like, how, like, okay. What is your level of ambition? Like, I'm always... Uh, you know, talk about it openly. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's not like a shameful thing. Like, okay. do, you, do you have, like, goals that you set for yourself? Or My ambitions would be to continue to write, um, to write, to achieve enough success so that it empowers me to write the next book. And I guess what I mean by that is, um, you know, I, I certainly don't assume that my short story collection is going to sell a ton of copies. It'd be nice. But I would hope that it gets well-reviewed so that there would be interest in my next work. Um, which, if well written, I would hope would get the, the right attention that would help me get to the next book. And, and within all that, you know, nice opportunities, invitations to particular places. I, I just got invited to uh, to um, the uh, the Frank I think it's the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Festival in Cork, um, and it looks like a great thing. And I'm really really happy about that. You're I mean, gonna go. I think I'm going to go. It's, it seems... Do they pay your way over there, or like, do you have to get almost, over there? They almost pay everything. Oh, so my God. I feel like I should go. Um, you should go. I, should, I, think I'm gonna go. <laughs> I know. Like, why am I wondering? Yeah, why are you even debating this? When is it? Uh, it's in September. So, okay. But I but I wrote the guy back, because he wants me... Uh, uh, he wants to pair me with, uh, I guess, a very prominent 
Maori writer from New Zealand, we would be a panel together. So I just wrote back to see, well, you know, what were you thinking in particular? So I haven't heard back yet. I, 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 I worry. I don't want him to think that I'm, uh, I'm like a Filipino warrior writer. <laughs> Which is why he's pairing me up with the Maori. Why not? Just do I, it. Just go with it. Maybe. Take the free trip. Face tattoo. Yeah, get a face get, a, get a permanent or an, you know like a fake face tattoo and just go over there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Free trip, face tattoo. It all makes sense. Um, so you know, just things like that. Yeah, I would, I would, I would, and you know, I work hard. I would like, I would love to have my work recognized. You know, and so would, when you look forward, it's like you want to be writing books and teaching, mm-hmm. and hopefully selling enough books to make a, you know a living. A good living. And yeah. Yeah. And I don't imagine that I would ever be able to write full time uh, to live off my writing. Um, and even if I could, I like being, I like having some structure. I like being affiliated with the school. I like the support system that comes with it. And, you know, obviously there are days in the classroom that, that aren't so great. But when the teaching is going really well, when you're talking about a student's work and you see improvement or you're talking about a book that you love with grad students, I actually stop myself sometimes and think, I'm actually getting paid for this right now. I'm getting paid to talk about this Stephen Milhauser story that I love. You know, that's 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 pretty amazing. Yeah, if you think about it. It's not. A, I mean, as far as like you know, uh, complementary you know professions go, it doesn't get much better than teaching. I mean, no. There's a reason why so many writers do it, like schedule wise, and then also in terms of the substance of it. Yeah, you actually get to go in there and talk, you know, to people about what you like to do. Yeah. Now, is there a part of it that you don't like? Um, I don't like um, I don't like grading essays. Me neither. Uh, I um, teach. I know exactly what you mean. It's just I love being in the classroom, yeah. but it's the going home with like a stack of like two hundred pages and being like, oh shit. Yeah, you know? it's all homework. Yeah, it's all homework. And you know, obviously, it's nice if they benefit from that and if they learn something. But it's homework. It's hard. So I don't I don't like that. Too is there well. are there any are there any creative writing professors who have like TAs who just do the grading? Because I know they do in like, you know, when it's like grading like a Scantron form or a, you know, a a true or false test, you know, that's one thing. But like, you know, you can't just like outsource that to a TA and be like, grade these short stories. I don't know. But if there's a way I want to, I want to do (laughs) Just get an intern. Put put an ad up on Craigslist. We can do that. Yeah. For everybody listening, he's, he's, he's looking for somebody to help him. Uh, well, listen, it's been really fun talking with you, and uh, congratulations so on the new collection. I wish you all the best of luck with it. Thank you. And uh, good luck me. writing the novel as well. Uh, I'll need it. Thanks so much. All right, everybody, there you go. That's the program. Go get Leslie's new story collection. It's called Monstrous, and it's available now from Echo. You can find him on Twitter. His handle is at Leslie Tenorio. That's L-Y-S-L-E-Y, and then the last name is T-E-N-O-R-I-O. Uh, and you can also find him on the Facebook. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com for more info. And thanks to Valley Jones for the transitional music. Uh, if you like the program, please go give it a nice rating and a nice review on iTunes. Uh, It's a simple way to support the cause. It takes two minutes of your life, and I would certainly appreciate it. Uh, Otherwise, final thoughts, closing thoughts, uh, Rush Limbaugh, Jonathan Franzen, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, You know, I I certainly don't want to sound insensitive, and I hope I didn't sound, uh, you know, grossly apathetic or anything on the front end. You know, if someone is engaging uh, in uh, genuine hate speech and saying uh, dark, evil, uh, you know, stuff, 
it's important, uh, you know, it's appropriate and, and, and important to to say so and defensible to get angry about it. But, uh, you know, people are always going to be saying and doing uh, things of this nature. So I think you got to kind of pick your moments. Uh, I think that's my only real point. And, uh, it, you know, it sort of wears me out. I just don't have the energy. And, and just to be like a thousand percent clear, uh, because I know I'm going to hear about it uh, from people. If someone says something or writes something that you don't agree with and you don't agree with it strongly, uh, by all means, have your say. You know, say what's on your mind. Write it down, whatever. Uh, it's a free country. And uh, I'm having my say right now. So do your thing. Uh, just don't get yourself so worked up that you get hypertension or uh, thrombosis because it's not worth it. Okay? All right. Uh, that's all I got. I'm going to sign off. I'm going to go do some light calisthenics. Please remember that Dwight Eisenhower's parents were pacifists and that the human body consists of approximately 60 trillion cells. Uh, try to be happy. Try to control your rage. Do not speak in anger if you can help it. And if you cannot help it, uh, please don't tweet about it. Do not tweet your rage. You're better than that. Have some self-respect.